I realize on the church calendar today is Palm Sunday. And in the Bible, as short-lived as it was, it was a day of celebration. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the, the crowds were there and they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they were laying cloaks on the ground. and It was an awesome day. So I do realize that's what the church world celebrates on their calendar today, but I'm going to go forward a few days because we don't have a Good Friday service here. But I want to talk about that last night when Jesus was in the garden. The title of my message is To Drink of the Father's Cup. The Father's Cup. And I'm amazed at how little I have known about the Father's Cup. And I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember ever preaching a sermon in 20 years as a pastor about the Father's Cup. That's what I'm going to try to share about today, the Father's Cup. I put, we had them put in your bulletins, the scriptures that I'm going to be referring to a lot, but I'm probably not going to read them in their entirety. But I wanted you to have the the three scriptures from the three different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that talk about this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you recall, after that last Passover supper that that we refer to as the Last Supper, when they had finished the supper, they did the wine and the bread and instituted what we still celebrate today, communion, to remember what Jesus did for us. And I realized in this past couple of weeks, in some of the reading and studying I've been doing, I have not been remembering near enough of what Jesus did for me. For all of us. So I want us to think about this, and, and if you can, even try to picture in your mind a little bit. They're, they've just finished this meal. Judas has left to betray Jesus. And after the meal, they get up, and there's some significant teaching going on there at the meal, and I think even as they were walking. But they left the place where they celebrated that last meal, And they walked out the city gate. And they came to the brook Kidron. Which at that time of year, because of all of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals being killed and their blood being shed, that brook Kidron was probably running red with blood. Ironic that Jesus would cross the brook Kidron. And he would cross with his disciples and they would start walking up the Mount of Olives. And as they were ascending up the Mount of Olives, the air would have gotten cooler. They had finished their meal, and their fatigue was probably starting to set in to some of them. And as they went up the Mount of Olives, they came to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means crushed olives. There were many olive trees on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And to get the oil from those, the oil that was so precious in so many different ways, economically and in their ceremonies, They'd have to crush these olives till the the oil would come out of the olives. And that's the name of the Garden of Gethsemane, which I think you'll see is so appropriate. And as Jesus and his disciples get there, he leaves the other eight disciples. Judas isn't with him. And he invites three of them, Peter and John and James, to come with him a little further to accompany him as he's going to pray. 
And if you can imagine, they're tired. The disciples lie down, probably on the cool ground, and sleep overtakes them. And if they heard anything, what they probably heard first was Jesus crying out, Abba, Father, in agony. It says he was to this place of agony that his soul was nearing death. And we've read that and we've heard it. And the question that kept coming to me was, what was the agony all about? And I hope today we get a picture of what it was that caused such agony. He cries out, Abba, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. And Jesus came back to the disciples a couple of different times to awaken them. And as they would have looked upon Jesus, they would have seen, as the scripture says, great drops of blood. The great drops, the Greek word there is thrombus. It means clumps. It's like coagulated blood. There was such bleeding coming out of the pores of his body as he was being crushed, like those olives that the garden's named after. As he's being crushed by this agony of something, that blood was squeezed out of his very pores. So much so that it would coagulate, clot, and big clumps of it falling to the ground. What a picture. What a picture of agony. What could possibly cause such trauma in Jesus? Before we go and try to find those answers, I want us to go back in time a long ways. We're going to go back before the creation of the world. And we're going to hopefully discover an eternal covenant that was established before the creation of the world. This is a unique, unique, a very unique covenant because this covenant was between God and God. The Lamb of God, Jesus. It's almost as if the Father is bringing to Jesus the plan and showing him fresh and anew. Even though he's God, I get that. But the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, it's almost as if they convened this meeting and, and God the Father is laying out for his Son before he goes to earth and takes on the form of a baby to walk the path to the cross and become the Lamb of God. The Father is going to make clear to him, this is going to cost you a lot. An eternal covenant There's going to be a few scriptures more than I normally use, but I want you to try to see what it is I'm talking about. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. There was an eternal covenant. Some would say that was the eternal covenant with his people after his death and resurrection, but that wouldn't make it eternal. Eternity past, eternity future. There was an eternal covenant established. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. 
No, the wisdom we speak, this is Paul speaking about his own teaching. He says, no, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though, the, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would have not crucified our glorious Lord. He connects this plan with the crucifixion. In 1 Peter 1, 18, I knowing that you were not knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile ways of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. There was a covenant. The plan was in place. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes, He who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This plan, this covenant, was in place before the worlds were even formed, before you and I were ever created. Dr. Sandy Kirk writes in her book, Sandy Kirk, her book is entitled Undone by the Revelation of the Lamb. In reference to this eternal covenant, she put it this way. Then my son, the father speaking to the son, then my son, you must open up wide and drink down every drop of my cup of wrath. You must drink it all alone, for I will open the heavens and roar down upon you my undiluted wrath against sin. Over and over again, with pounding fury, you will be punished with my severe judgment, taking upon yourself the punishment which they deserve for sin. My son, this is what you must endure if you agree to become a lamb. In the Jewish ceremonial religion the lamb the sacrificial lamb it was killed its throat was cut its blood was shed they would literally cut the animal into pieces and lay him on the altar laying him in the form of the animal and then they would burn it burn it with fire and God is saying to his son Jesus you're going to be my lamb you will be the lamb of God Jonathan Edwards wrote these words, and Jonathan Edwards wrote some powerful, powerful sermons. He referred to this covenant this way. He said, some things were done before the world was created. Yes, from eternity. The persons of the Trinity were, as it were, confederated in a design and a covenant of redemption. In this covenant, the Father had appointed the Son, and the Son had undertaken the work, and all things to be accomplished were stipulated to and agreed. As you go through Scripture, we can see that there was some covenant that God made with God. And it appears as you look through Scripture and study the Scripture, there was a very significant purpose 
in revealing to the Lamb clearly what this meant. Even before he came to earth as a child, God in the flesh, and lived his life and ultimately became the sacrificial lamb. Back to the scriptures in that little handout that I put in the bulletins. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you nearly need to read all three of them together and piece together this amazing scene that took place in the garden. In Matthew 26 and verse 38, he says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. My soul is so deeply grieved. Can you imagine being one of the disciples and hearing Jesus say those words to you and you're wondering, what in the world? What in the world is he talking about? What is he so grieved about that his soul is unto death? And then he says, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. What is so unbelievably horrible about the cup? In verse 42 of Matthew 26, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, he's going to drink the cup. In Mark chapter 14, he repeats again in verse 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And in verse 36, it's where he cries out, Abba, Father, Father, Father. In the anguish of his soul, he is crying out to his Father, who always hears him. And he says, all things are possible for you, Father. Take this cup. But your will, not mine. And in verse 41 of Mark chapter 14, He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. The reason he left heaven and came to earth, the hour has come. The reason he lived this sinful life, the hour has come. To become the sacrificial lamb, the hour has come. And in the Gospel of Luke, once again in verse 42, he says, He's saying, and Luke is reporting the same words, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but yet not my will, but yours. And in verse 44 of Luke chapter 22, and being in agony, he was praying fervently and his sweat like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The agony. The cup. Though we're not told explicitly here what that cup is, I think if we look through the scriptures, we see some strong indicators of exactly what the cup is. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours out the wine in judgment on all the wicked that must drink it, draining it to its dregs. The fullness of that cup is going to be poured out or consumed by the wicked. Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand again the cup 
filled to the brim with my anger and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. All the enemies of God were going to drink from the cup of his anger. Isaiah 51, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, get up, arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling. You have drained it to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 22, thus says the Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger, and you will never have to drink it again. In Isaiah 53, 4, it's written that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. There is a cup that the Father held in his hand, and it was filled with his anger and his wrath and his judgment against sin. Everything that you and I deserved is in that cup. Everything that the unbeliever is ultimately going to receive in hell is in that cup. The fire of hell, the judgment of hell, the agony, the suffering of hell is in that cup. And every believer, every non-believer, every person who rejects Christ is going to drink of that cup. And we see Jesus in the garden in agony, praying fervently. He is suffering, so his soul is almost unto death. And what does he pray about? What does he ask the Father? Please remove this cup. God's innocent son, Jesus, who never committed a single sin in his whole life, was going to drink down every drop of the Father's wrath and take our punishment for sin. Ephesians 1, it says this in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, that eternal covenant, the Lamb of God, and his assignment being laid out, I believe Jesus sees the Father's cup of wrath. And he sees, as we'll talk about later, not only the wrath and the judgment that's in there, but when he looks in that cup, he sees us. He sees his bride. He sees those who have been called to be his bride. And when he looks in that cup, he realizes if he doesn't drink the cup, all of us will drink the cup of what we deserved, the wrath and the judgment. And I believe of all the demonstrations of the love that we see Jesus demonstrate to us, there's no greater demonstration of that love. When he looked in that cup, he couldn't bear the thought of us having to drink that cup. The scripture says, for the joy that was set before him. He's looking into that cup. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. I think we have underestimated what it means when it says he endured the cross. We think of the crown of thorns. Really, there should be no flowers on that cross. There is nothing beautiful about the cross. Nothing. An instrument of horror. The spikes that were driven into his hands and feet. The sword that pierced his side. The mocking. And he chose to drink the cup. So I'm going to return now to the Garden of Gethsemane. Returning to the scene where the disciples are sleeping. And Jesus is in the greatest agony of his life. Sweating. Sweating is just a bad word. He is being so pressed by the agony that the blood is coming out of the pores of his body in such quantities that it's clotting and falling to the ground. Why? Why such agony? When you think about the scene, when we think about the crucifixion, as we think about Easter, we will think about the scourging, and it was horrible. The cat of nine tails with the, the, the bones of the lamb ripping away his flesh, tearing apart his flesh, laying him open, bleeding. We think about the, the little crown of thorns put on your head, just that much. How would we endure the crown of thorns being pressed down on our head every time you moved? The pain it would inflict. Spikes in his hands and feet. Are these the things he was thinking about when he's sweating these drops of blood? The shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the mocking, being spit upon. Was it the dread that he had of, of realizing he was going to have to have on him all of the filthiness of the sin of the world? Was that what he was thinking about? Was he thinking about being separated from the Father? He'd never been separated from the Father. They've spent eternity with the Father. Even on earth, he was in continuous communion with the Father. As horrible as that thought was, is that what he was thinking about that caused him to sweat these drops of blood? Was he thinking of that cold slab of rock that they were going to lay him on in a tomb and he was going to be buried? I don't think so. All that stuff is horrible. More than any of us can imagine enduring. And I don't think that's what he was thinking about. Many, many Christians over the years have died as martyrs. Many of them on a cross. Many of them have put their head on the chopping block knowing that that thing was going to cut off their head in just a moment. I don't think Jesus is less brave than any of those martyrs those that were burned at the stake for their faith. I don't think Jesus is any less brave than any of those. I think what he was experiencing in the garden was worse than any of that, multiplied exponentially. What was it? What was it that could be so horrible that Jesus was in such agony and being so pressed that blood was coming out of his skin? 
as I've said, and hopefully you've figured out by now, I believe the answer to that question is in his prayer, in the garden. Over and over, Father, if it's possible, remove the cup. If it's possible, remove the cup. He didn't ask him to come up with a better plan than a cross or the scourging he was going to take, the nails in his hands and feet. None of that. It was the cup. Father, remove the cup. All things are possible with you. Please remove the cup. But if it's not your will, thy will be done. What was in the cup? Jonathan Edwards in the sermon called Christ's Agony wrote these words. Jesus was brought to the mouth of the furnace so that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat when he had full sight of the wrath of God that he must suffer. The sight was overwhelming to him. It made his soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded by not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might know what was in the cup, God brought the fu- cup, but God the Father brought the cup that he was to drink and set it down before him that he might have a full view of it and see what it was before he took it and drank it. He had to know what was coming. For the sacrifice to be all that it was meant to be, he had to know. And now he's looking in the cup. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father is showing him what's in the cup. And it's nearly killing him as he looks in that cup. This furnace that Jonathan Edwards mentioned is the eternal wrath and judgment of Almighty God. That's what's in the cup. And this is what Jesus was going to be thrust into, and this is what he was going to have to drink, all of it. For all the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future, all the wrath of God, all the judgment of that sin was in that cup. And that's what he's looking into. And he's looking into what was going to come upon him when he was nailed to that cross. It wasn't the being nailed to the cross. It wasn't the scourging. They're horrible. They're horrifying. But they pale in comparison to the wrath of God, the cup, the judgment of God. Jesus in the garden isn't thinking about any of the physical pain of the crucifixion, I am convinced. He is contemplating and realizing the wrath of God that is going to be poured upon him on that cross. Remember the cross. Can you imagine all of the condensed eternal wrath of God, all of the judgment of God, that's going to come against sin being poured out on you. 
That's what Jesus was facing as the Lamb of God. All of hell's blazing fury was going to come on him. The judgment for sin was on him. It was all in the cup for him to drink. John Stott, another writer and pastor you may have heard of, wrote these words. I'm going to repeat them a couple times to be clear. We may even say that our sins sent Christ to hell. Not in a battle down in hell after his body went to the grave, but on the cross before his body ever died. There is teaching that Jesus went to hell. That's not what I am teaching. I am teaching that Jesus experienced all that hell had to offer while still alive on the cross. He endured wave after wave after wave of the fury of God's wrath. Wave after wave of God's judgment while on the cross before he died. Man, does that give new meaning to the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never experienced anything like it. Nobody has and ever will, even those who experience hell. Revelations 14.10, it talks about the cup of wrath for those who don't believe. And it says, he also will drink of the wine. This is for all of those in context. This is for all of those who decide to worship the beast. In other words, reject Christ. And here's what it says in Revelations 14.10. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his wrath. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. That is the cup of God's wrath. Why did Jesus do it? Well, the obvious answer is, first of all, obedience to the Father. Obedience to the Father. There was an eternal covenant that was made between God and God before the creation of earth and anybody that ever walked on it. And he knew that he was going to fulfill. He knew that he must fulfill that eternal covenant. So obedience, obviously, is there. But there's more. And once again, I want to read a quote from Dr. Sandy Kirk's book. And she wrote these words. You see, he looked into the furnace of hell, and he saw you and me. He saw you and me enduring the punishment we deserved for our sins. And he threw himself in front of the Father's eternal wrath to save us. This is what theologians call a propitiation. Jesus was our propitiation. And what that word simply means is a sacrifice to avert wrath. Jesus was our propitiation. In 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Jesus became the sacrifice to avert the wrath of God that we deserve. 
Remember the cross. In the garden, he is seeing it. On the cross, he's experiencing it. And we can't. I know we can't. We're not capable as human beings to understand what he must have been enduring when all the wrath of God that had been held back by his grace for centuries is being poured out on Jesus. The judgment for all sin. John Piper wrote this. He said, God sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for us. As our substitute, Jesus doesn't just cancel the wrath. He absorbs it. And he diverts it from us to himself. Why did Jesus do it? Those scriptures, if you read through them, in the garden, Jesus is in agony. Matthew 26, 38, his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, it's where he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke twenty two forty four, being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus dreaded, dreaded the Father's cup. Can you imagine the horror when Jesus understood and saw and knew what he was about to endure? The fear, the agony that you would experience. What compelled him to do it? Love. I've been praying that God would give me a revelation of that kind of love. And I'm going to warn you, I've been praying that you would get a revelation of that kind of love. What Jesus did on the cross what he endured, the wrath and the judgment that belonged to me and you, he took it all. That we don't ever, ever have to. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I've been telling you what you will experience if you never make that decision. You will experience everything that Jesus endured on the cross as our propitiation. Hell has been prepared for Satan and all his demons and all who reject him. Man, if your excuse is you got plenty of time, don't be stupid. That didn't sound good. Don't be stupid. There's this amazing gift that costs Jesus more than we'll ever know and understand until we get to heaven. And he says, please, here, take it. Receive it. Accept me as your Lord and Savior. Fear was overwhelming him, but love compelled him to drink the cup. When you look at Paul's prayer to the Ephesians in Ephesians three seventeen, 
It just gives me more insight than I've ever had before. When he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. As we think about Easter, it's so much more than Easter eggs and rabbits and all that good stuff. It's so much more than family, friends, and food. It should be a reminder that we shouldn't have to be reminded of because it should be in the forefront of our mind every day. What being the Lamb of God meant. The real lamb, the sacrificial lamb, was its throat was cut, its blood was spread on the altar. The body was cut to pieces, laid on the altar and burned, the fire. And then we have Jesus, the Lamb of God, his flesh torn apart, eventually a sword stuck in his side. He drank that cup of wrath, experiencing fires of God's wrath for us. And next week we celebrate Easter. I want to encourage you to invite somebody to come to church that doesn't go to church. There's such good news on Easter. And really as horrifying as this, this segment of time was in Christ's life, it's all good news. He took on him what belonged to us. Let's pray. Lord, I just continue to pray that you would give us in the very depths of our hearts a picture of what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. God, that it would just wreck us in the natural, that our hearts would be broken and filled with thanksgiving and your love. God, I pray that you would help us to grab a hold of the truth and be able to share with others of what Jesus did for us, how much he loves us. God, that your Holy Spirit would just Draw those people that don't know you as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray if there's somebody here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, has never acknowledged that they are a sinner and need a Savior and that Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice and they haven't received him, I pray, Lord, they would receive that gift even now. God, I pray you would motivate them to, to share that with somebody here, that they could confess with their mouth what they have done in their heart. Lord, that none would perish. That's your heart. We know that's your heart. God, we just pray that you would continue to give us the grace to share the good news of the gospel in a way that will advance your kingdom and lead others from the precipice of hell to the knowledge of eternal life in your presence. 
Lord, I ask all this in Jesus' name, that he would be glorified. Amen.